Hello and welcome to Football Unfocused, the football-based podcast uh, in which myself, Mark, and my friend Matthew discuss uh, issues related to football that have tickled our fancy, uh, either over the week or just, you know, in general. Um, Matt, Matt loves football even more than me, don't you, Matt? You're the, I mean, anyone who's listened to this before knows you're the fanatic. You're <laughs> looking forward brain. to the Euros, Matt. They start tonight as we're recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, looking forward to How it. excited yeah. are you on a scale of one to ten, with ten <laughs> being the most excited? Oh, I don't. I don't know if I don't know if ten would justify. You know the, mm. the kind of the, the the feelings that are bubbling up inside. It's um, mm. yeah, tell it's me, what like, are those feelings, Matt? Yeah, you know, it's like a cauldron of, you know, just uh, just hot, hot, wet feelings. <laughs> Hot, hot, wet I feelings. I don't... <laughs> Maybe I should pop to the loo, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think you definitely should. Yeah, get yourself a moist towel. Um, good, hot, wet feelings. Matt, what's the first game of the Euros that's on tonight? Is it, is it Italy, isn't it? Cool. Well done, Matt. Who are they playing? Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't even know. So even though the Scotland are in is the same... Is it Italy, England, Switzerland? No. No, you could you could just name the twenty four teams. Uh, actually, that would be interesting. I mean, if we had all day, I could say to you, name the twenty four teams that are in the Euros. But I might as well say to you, name twenty four European countries because we'd have as much chance of you randomly getting them right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah. yeah, they've got an outside chance worth a worth a two hundred and fifty to one on the on the Seychelles. Yeah, good. So you're looking forward to it. How much of the Euros do you think you're going to be watching that? I mean, do you think you'll actually sit down and watch a match? Well, I'm coming round tomorrow. So I assume we're going to be watching a, a match. So aside tomorrow. from the time where you've invited yourself round to my house <laughs> on a hot, sunny day, and, uh, and that would actually, funnily enough, be one of the days I'd be least likely to sort of stay indoors and uh, spend the time watching. I, w- I mean, I, w- I want to see how Wales go on. I think they're playing a- tomorrow early afternoon, aren't they? But aside from yeah. that... Are you going to watch, say you and Joe are sitting there of an evening over the next uh, month, are you going to be saying, oh, it's uh, Finland against Hungary tonight? (laughs) Yeah, no. Um, I do, I mean, I would say my my passion, (laughs) I mean, my passion for international football has possibly waned a little, you know, after my 20s. Just sort of the... When was your peak of international football excitement and enthusiasm? Probably Euro nine. I was, I was thinking about this the other day. Probably Euro ninety six. Euro ninety six. Yeah, Euro ninety six was beautiful because I mean, obviously England being England, it didn't ultimately result in a, a victory, but it was it was a team that did themselves proud, and it was a team that kind of built momentum as they went on and put in some amazing performances, and then had the the classic kind of heroic failure. But it was also just a brilliant summer of football, and the, and I think it was the after such a long period of so much negativity around football in this country, it was probably one of the first times that we started to realise, well, we can not only kind of engage and do well in a tournament like this, we can actually um, host it as well and host it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was an amazing summer. I'm, I'm similar to you. I think we've discussed it in previous podcasts. I struggle to give a shit uh, as much about international football as I used to. I still, I'll still watch it. And I, I actually find this England team much more kind of likeable 
and relatable than um, probably John Terry. Yeah, since the John Terry, I mean, they were dark. I couldn't, I just couldn't support any team with that man in the side. <laughs> you know, you got a man, you got a man who, I mean, let's just tick it all off. The guys, the guys are racist. The guy, uh, he, and Andy, um, he did the ultimate dirty on his uh, team with his teammate's uh, wife. Um, so yeah, love, lovely character. I actually played. Uh, you, you probably did as well. In uh, we played cricket against. Uh, against him uh, when we played his his secondary school uh, and he was in a year above us and I remember them because they, they were a secondary school that didn't have many cricketers and they um, they got permission for a, a two players in the year above to play and he was one of them you might not remember but no, I remember no. and then we used to see him in um, after a night out in Romford in the late 90s he'd always be in a chippy queue with Jody Morris in Anthony's really? Diner on South Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a tosser then, and he's a tosser now. He's got one of the most punchable faces in uh, in the history of European people. Um, yeah, but a team with him in, and uh, you know, the like you know, Rooney and uh, Rooney's uh, all right. Well, yeah, I mean. I mean, and you know, Skulls, he was obviously, you know, yeah, amazing the, footballer. Yeah, Skulls, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that lot. But it, do you know what it was? It was, I think that that was the time when the players became much more kind of cocooned in a bubble of their own hype. Uh, and they weren't as kind of accessible and relatable. So it kind of coincided yeah. with that Sven era where everything just got a bit loopy. The, the, the Beckham. drama around Beckham, which was so much to do with. Uh, style over substance you know he wasn't even England's best player at the time and yet everything seemed to revolve around him because he, he ticked all the tabloid boxes and people who knew very little about football who engaged with it just in international tournaments just saw him as the you know the epitome of everything and that that used to really wind me up because ultimately he that man went missing um people forget this it really really winds me up he's like he's wrongly regarded as an England great because he scored a qualifying goal against Greece in a game against a poor quality nation where we were on the verge of not qualifying for a tournament and required him to put in a heroic performance, which he definitely did on the day and he scored a free kick. But, you know, there aren't many times where in said tournament that we then qualified for that he went on to put in um, the type of performance that his supposed reputation would uh, befit. And that, that generation was just let down after let down. And it was difficult to kind of give give a damn about them because I didn't really like hardly any of the players. And I think also there was a, there were much more kind of partisan uh, splits in the England camp around that time as well. You know the the Liverpool lads uh, and the Chelsea lads and the, uh, the the lot from Old Trafford just didn't. You could tell they didn't really get on with each other that much. Kind of even when they're on. England time <laughs> when and, they were in the same team. Yeah, they just didn't look like a team. I mean, you look at some of the players that they were exceptional and they, they they just didn't play well. It's not like they went out there and weren't quite good enough. They were embarrassingly awful, especially in I mean they were pretty terrible in two thousand and six. They didn't even qualify for two thousand and eight. Twenty ten World Cup is one of the most pitiful performances I've ever seen from uh, any international team. They were just pathetic in every single match and and wrongly try and focus on the game they got knocked out in, the, the Lampard's, you know, the ball going over the line against Germany. Nowadays, that would obviously get given. But that fails to recognise that they were completely and utterly outclassed for the whole game. I think they ended up losing yeah, it 4-1, yeah. didn't they? I mean, yeah, they were, they, yeah, it was yeah. men against boys. It was ridiculous. They were outclassed and you know, outdone tactically and, and technically, 
And that's kind of what the experience of watching England is. Uh, like, I mean, I look at international tournaments uh, uh, more than anything else. It's just, I just enjoy watching the kind of, you know, the festival of football. If England do well, great. And I, I actually like, these are a good bunch of lads. They seem, they seem much more kind of relaxed and open. And uh, Southgate does a very good job of kind of um, making them feel kind of relaxed and, and selling them as people um, rather than sort of superstars in their, um, yeah. you know, uh, Rustenburg Hotel like they were in South Africa which was like a fortress where Capello was drilling them relentlessly uh, around the clock um, so yeah but I, don't, I mean they're, they're not going to win it um, but we'll just see how they get on so it'd just be he, nice nice to see if they played well who, who do you think will win? Uh, Euros is interesting I think with the World Cup you can go into any World Cup and uh, you can probably say there's four or five teams one of those is going to win it uh, the Euros have got a history of surprises, you know. In the last, since um, 1992, when Denmark won it, Greece and Portugal have also won it. Portugal weren't minnows, but they didn't go into 2016 as favourites at all. And they actually did, um, especially in the knockout game, including the final. You know, do you think about it, they've got one of the greatest players ever to play the game, Cristiano Ronaldo, and he was uh, he got an injury in the final, and they, they still managed to to sort of cobble together a win through team spirit and organisation. I think if you go into the Euros and you can defend well and keep tactically disciplined, you've got a chance as Greece. I mean, Greece just killed every single game and just won, <laughs> won it 1-0. But it was amazing, really. You'd never, but you'd never get that in a World Cup because I think that there's too many kind of uh, stages to go through. The Euros has been, in a lot of ways, I always used to say that the Euros was the better quality of the two tournaments because despite it lacking kind of Brazil and Argentina and maybe Uruguay, uh, it, it has the, the best teams in the world and it used to be a smaller tournament. So the, the standards were sky high right from the beginning, right from the group. Since they've extended it to 24, great as it is to have um, some of the smaller countries getting a chance to play, it does then have a bit of a, a qualifying tournament vibe to it in terms of the quality in the early stages. Um, but we'll see, maybe it'll be different. But I, I've got a horrible feeling that because it's been such an packed in like season, you know, a, 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 tr a truncated season because of COVID. So they had to pack in, you know, they had about six weeks uh, less to play with than they would normally do. Players are going to be absolutely knackered, a lot of them. And you're going to, and they've had a short period of time to kind of uh, recuperate before this. I just think you're going to get some tired, stodgy um, sort of, you know, tactical games um but i hope i'm wrong matt I hope <laughs> yeah. I'm wrong. you're really inspiring me to watch as much but if you're asking me who's going to win it probably france yeah. <laughs> it's not very original but it probably will be france <laughs> and if not i don't know Ge germany maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're really putting your neck out there well people keep saying italy have got a good chance which remains to be seen but they're gonna they're gonna attack apparently which they don't normally do but uh but yeah, we'll see. Matt, quick question for you, uh, uh, Matthew. That, um, goes to me. Do you have a dishwasher? Yeah, yeah we have you a do. And how often do you use it? <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. Um, well, just but... answer the question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just interested. Uh, every other day. Is that because uh, it takes two days to get to a to full enough state? Uh, to um, warrant putting it on, justify yeah. its usage, yeah, yeah, or just because well, you're what would be tight. The other one? You, 
I'm just trying we, to we filled it up. We filled it up, but we're going to carry on washing yeah. <laughs> for another yeah. day because just putting it on every day just seems. Yeah. You're not paying that lucky bill. are you? <laughs> yeah. Matt, who invented the skip? Oh my days. Who invented the skip? <laughs> was there, was their name, surname skip? Or was it or Skipper or something? Was that? I actually name? have no. I have no idea who invented the Skipper. I, oh, you, right. I, I oh. hope you're going to pick up on the Partridge reference. And uh, <laughs> when the, 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 the father oh. rang up to, to tell him how ignorant his views were on uh, <laughs> a spinal cord in a bat, and he was just going, "Who invented the skip?" And uh, the guy just went, oh, I, I don't know, Bobby Moore. Um, that would have been the right answer. I don't know, Bobby Moore. Oh, but you, you, need, you need to, you know. Uh, I need to bone up on my. You need to swat up on reference. your partridge. Yeah. <laughs> I would told you to watch something the other day, and you clearly aren't interested in watching stuff that isn't partridge anymore. You just. <laughs> Matthew, you're talking to a man who, over the last uh, six weeks, has watched every episode of five series of The Wire. Oh, yeah. So, can watch things that aren't partridge. I can watch. <laughs> Anything that is Partridge and The Wire. <laughs> and The Wire is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It's incredible. And I can't believe it finished in 2008 and it's taken me until 2021 to watch it. I felt ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't beat yourself up. I still haven't watched it. Uh, well, I haven't watched Line of Duty, and I think, and I know you think that's absolutely. Oh, I love amazing. it. Yeah, it's not as good as The Wire, but it is, yeah, as British uh, uh, TV goes, it's, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty, pretty good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'd make some comment about the the last episode and being slightly underwhelming, but uh, that would ruin it for you if you ever did watch it. But it was, it's one of the B character, you know, one of the B listers uh, mm. ended up being the H or whatever it was. That you've was always, you seem to know an awful lot about it for a man who's never seen it. But it's because I watch Gogglebox and you watch oh, Gogglebox and you you basically can pick up. Is that, you know, kind of what's going on? Well, all I'd say to that, Matt, you know, in order to assess uh, the quality of a squad, you've got to keep your under-21s as well. It's not just about those first-teamers. <laughs> <I don't... laughs> you didn't get are you, that. Are you, are, you, are you saying that I should hang out with younger people? <laughs> I'm saying to you, Matthew, that the obvious <laughs> stars are not always the ones that are right in front of you. So the culprits... Aren't always. It's not oh, always right. the, yeah, the, yeah, main, yeah. the main cast, but you know you fail to pick up yeah. on that. Just yeah, like, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm missing your. <laughs> yeah, you're missing all sorts, aren't you? <laughs> you're just missing. You're missing the point. So, Matthew, what are, what is our uh, engaging subject today? On we know we've had a light-hearted chat for, for 16 minutes. What are we? Uh, what yeah. are we actually going to be talking about today? Well, don't say sixteen minutes because I might cut it down. To, <laughs> to you are not two. cutting. You are not cutting a second of that gold. That has been now pushing seventeen yeah. minutes of absolute gold. Okay. Well, you wanted to talk about um, the uh, uh, the the recent. Oh, can you just introduce it? Okay. I want. All right. Fine. I, w- I want to talk about it. It is a more, more serious issue than I would normally encourage us to engage with here. But it is topical because it's about the reaction to the England players uh, taking the knee uh, in their two um, pre-Euro warm-up games uh, up at the River, both played at the Riverside Stadium. And what that kind of says about who we are and 
where we are and the type of country that we seem to be now. Um, and the, I, I mean, I'm just finding it difficult to look beyond how, how deeply depressing it is, frankly, when you've got a situation that the, the manager of the national team is having to come out and defend um, his players for doing something where they are, they are taking a noble, peaceful and dignified stand uh, on a subject that is essentially a, a kind of a human rights issue. It's about it's something in which everyone with a heart should empathise. And it's been systematically undermined by people with a vested interest in undermining it. And as a result, you now have... It's, it's difficult when it's a, a sound effect, really. But it's it really did... Um, it sounded on the TV like around at least 30 to 40% of the stadium were booing, booing as players were taking the knee before the game. And I think we're going to go into the tournament and I just fear that that subject could continue to dominate as long as England uh, players take the knee. And the players have quite rightly so um, sort of come together and said that they will continue to take the knee and they don't care if people boo them because they know the reasons they're doing it for. Um, but the fact that they're having to defend it is, I think, systematic of so much that it, it, it's bigger than football, really, that, that so much that's wrong. And it just makes me feel quite sick and want to just sort of go in a room, close the door and never come out. I mean, how, how, how do you feel about this issue, Matthew? Well, yeah, no, I do. But I'm wary of sort of wading into it. I know you, you know and I mentioned this in a message before, you've you've obviously got credibility with regards to your passion for football. You know more you know more about football than anyone I know. But what you have seen, as much as I have and as much as anyone has, is over the last year that what what I feel has happened, essentially try try and break try and break it down as sort of concisely as possible. Clearly in summer twenty twenty you have a groundswell of emotion and opinion and and momentum to do something as a result of horrific uh, instances that cost a man his life in the United States. But it wasn't just about that. That was just the latest, a long line of uh, incidents that have happened, not just in the US, but kind of all over the world. And I think people, that was a real moment in time where it's like enough is enough. You know, our lives do matter as well. We as black people have uh, suffered enough. We've been undermined enough. We've been ignored enough and we've been devalued enough. And this is a moment where we all need to stand together and say that our lives do matter as much as anyone else's life. And it, I personally cannot see how any other human being can disagree with that unless you have a vested interest in disagreeing with that. It suits your own kind of agenda, be it an agenda that you're prepared to acknowledge uh, kind of publicly or one that you're going to kind of hide behind by finding ways in which you're going to undermine that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement or any sort of movement towards uh, sort of solidarity and, and moves towards equality and fairness. Um, and it just, it's, it's been really, really interesting and depressing in equal measure to see how that, it, what felt like quite universal goodwill towards towards that movement has been chipped away at. So now we have a situation less than a year after when 
a football stadium of of almost entirely white people are booing the uh, very multicultural, ethnically diverse England football team, taking a knee, a, a cause to which they all uh, agree is a necessary step to do and something they think is is right and proper to do. They're, they're being booed for it. And the government of this country have lacked the, the guts to condemn that. And I, I just think it's outrageous. And I know why it is. We all know why it is. We know that it suits certain people in this country to a lot of people. Let's 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 not pull any punches. Right. Racist people use the opportunity to undermine the Black Lives Matter movement by picking up on some small examples of misbehavior at protests and using that as a way of making blanket generalizations about the movement itself. So if 100,000 people or more attend a peaceful protest where they're walking in in, in unison and they're chanting and singing and, and, and waving banners and causing no issue whatsoever, even the majority of them during a time of pandemic um, adhering to sort of social distancing and safety measures, and out of them a, a few hundred max I don't know, pull down a statue of, of by the way, a, not, not a statue of, a, of, a, of a, a, a sort of noble person of British history, someone who was a slave trader or they or a couple of people maybe let themselves down by smashing a window of a shop or something like that. Right. In the whole scheme of things, that's such a minor incident and such a tiny reflection of a couple of people. But they will focus on that because it allows them then to undermine, to portray everyone associated with that as some sort of extremist. And it's exact. And 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 rather than kind of ensuring that the focus remains on the core issue, our government have sided with the people who object to what they try to portray in this fake culture war as an erosion and a threat to British values by pulling down statues. Now, if British, are, you, are we really saying that in 2021, British values are best uh, exemplified by a statue of a slave trader by a bridge in, uh, in Bristol? Or, you know, this weird pathological obsession everyone seems to have with the the flag and the, you know, noticed how the flags are suddenly everywhere. We used to kind of like scoff at the, the, the Yanks for their obsession. They have the flag everywhere in every classroom. We used to go, oh, they're such a nationalistic, they're obsessed with their national identity. And now it seems that that's the thing. And it's no coincidence. It's come in that same period of time where we've been encouraged to leave the EU and we seem to be becoming more and more insular and seeing everyone else as a threat. Everything's someone else's fault. It's the other, it's them. And we, it just seems that we're closing in on ourselves and becoming an, a, 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 an increasingly um, unpleasant place to, to, to live and to operate. And another thing that they'll do as well. Have you ever noticed that people who are too scared to stand by their political principles and convictions will say things like, I'll keep politics out of it and I don't, I don't want to discuss politics. Let's not get political. And those people are almost always people who have... Uh, and they're often, they often, again, lack the courage to admit this openly, but they support the status quo. And they are people who would secretly oppose the change that is being suggested. So they say, oh, no, let's, let's not. Sport isn't political. Sport is political in the same way that all of life is political, because anything that involves representations of society 
is political. It is just by definition, whether you like it or not, it is political, you know. Standing and take, representing a nation in a sporting event is political. It doesn't mean that the participants in that are politicians. It doesn't mean that there's any pressure on them to speak out about political issues. But it is, you know, what's the, the bureaucracy that runs sport, all of sport? Football is no different. It is political. FIFA and UEFA are political organisations. They are politically influential organisations. You know, look at how um, uh, sort of, you know, dictators over the years have used politics to uh, to push their own agenda, to legitimise, um, you know, sports washing, as they call it. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll bid to like host a, a tournament to, to, to legitimise their uh, often sort of, you know, morally, ba- morally bankrupt and corrupt regimes. So, that, that, so it's impossible to separate the two. And it doesn't mean that you should be fixated with, with kind of politics and sport being part of the same thing. But don't tell me that there's, there is no connection between the two. And it's only people, the only people who kind of say that and argue that are people who don't have the strength and convictions. And most of those people, frankly, in my experience, are people whose, whose views are quite right wing anyway. And they, they lack the moral fortitude to, it's like the sort of people who never want to discuss politics with you. It's not because they don't want to get into an argument. It's because they haven't got the bollocks to admit themselves, oh, well, I actually, you know, I agree with that. I, I agree with Brexit or I agree with, uh, you know, um, building an island uh, and creating a hostile environment for, for immigrants who've tried to, you know, come here for a, for a better life. And um, another thing as well is that, that, that in ways in which the, the kind of opponents of the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular have, have attempted to undermine it is, is to portray them as some sort of extremists I keep hearing the word Marxist thrown out. You see it a lot on Twitter. And I would love to live in a world where everybody uses the term Marxist as, a, as an insult towards a, um, um, a Black Lives Matter uh, enthusiast or anyone who's just speaking up for sort of equality and fairness. I'd love to see them have to sit down and define what Marxism is. It's just scaremongering. And what it does, if you put these labels on these, on, on these movements for a fairer society, if you, if you, Initially, look at if you if you don't want it to work right and you don't want it to be respected, you want your your interest is to undermine it. Then you your, the tactics by which you do that, rather than coming out and having the balls to admit that you yourself don't actually agree with what they're trying to achieve. And you like the system that we have now and you don't think there's any need for any sort of historic redress. Rather than admit that you'll hide behind some bullshit about how, oh, I know, I agree with the principle, but they've taken it too far. You know, these people are extremists, they're Marxists, and I don't believe in, you know, just going and pulling down statues. And, and, then, and then what happens is you get this kind of fake sort of bubble culture war, as people call it, where people are just fixated on those, which are tiny, uh, unimportant kind of peripheral details that have nothing to do with the, the sort of main agenda. And, and they use that to... to, to as, as a way to legitimise the undermining of the, the, the sort of central argument. And it's disgraceful. And if you notice, it is almost entirely white people that are doing this. Now, we're, we are two white people, Matthew. Um, and I, I just don't buy that as a white person, you cannot imagine what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. I just don't buy that. And I think it is so kind of restrictive and um, it is so kind of, you know, uh, narrow minded 
to walk around in life and think I will only ever be able to see things from my perspective and therefore you can't possibly expect me to to kind of understand the experience of another somebody from another culture another background whatever that's absolute bollocks it just requires a little bit of education and empathy so you engage your brain and to care listen why don't people listen just fucking listen you know it's just absolutely outrageous so if you're part of a a group um that have uh, an, an an ethnic identity that over hundreds of years have been subjugated have been have been had slavery inflicted upon them and then even in the you know couple of hundred years since that technically ended you are at almost every stage of society up against barriers that are designed to keep you in your place at every single stage the way in which you are treated as uh, in 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 terms of you know the barriers you come up against when you're looking seeking employment, when you're seeking fairness in front of the legal system, when the, the, the problems that you encounter in terms of you know healthcare, all of those things are set up against you. And if you just because you don't happen to be uh, uh, from an ethnic minority background yourself, if you cannot understand that and support that and see that you as a white person are part of the system that has benefited people exactly like you throughout your entire life and throughout the lives of pretty much everyone in your family tree going back to that uh you know hundreds of years before that then frankly there's no there's no hope for you and again you'll hear you'll hear the, another sort of cop out thing is you'll hear people say oh but hold on it's not like all white people walk through life and don't have problems themselves and you know white people are poor and yes of course we're not that again is deliberately misconstruing the argument it's the lib it's the willful misunderstanding to the point where you, your ignorance drags down the drags down and distracts from from the argument that is we're not saying that clearly there will always be you know exceptions and differences in exactly the same way as you know vaccine denying conspiracy theorists because they know that the data doesn't support their point of view their 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 agenda They'll deal with everything on an anecdotal basis. So they'll say, oh, you say that uh, uh, the, um, the, the the measles, mumps and rubella jab doesn't kill babies. Well, I know that, you know, my uh, a, a friend of a friend of a friend on Facebook, their, <laughs> their 18 month old had it. And then and then the day after developed autism. Well, that's not evidence, is it? That's just that's just. <laughs> and, and that's an exception in exactly the same way that clearly. You know, we all, unless we're exceptionally lucky, we all face challenges in life, you know, be they economic challenges, health challenges, all sorts of stuff. But there, there isn't that you can you can accept that at the same time as acknowledging that there are groups of people who for no more reason than their ethnicity are born with a disadvantage. They are faith. The world is set up to disadvantage them and to protest against people protesting against that is warped beyond belief and it is disgusting and it makes me so ashamed it makes me just want to the reason it's relevant to this football podcast is because it is because it's you know it's in the news because of incidents that have happened at football matches it's not a football problem i think football actually you know in the whole scheme of things probably deals with issues like this better than a lot of other uh, sections of, of, of society do but for for our government 
to lack the moral fortitude and the courage to come out and condemn those people for booing. And let's be honest, we all know why they don't do it. It's because those exact same people who are booing are part of the mindset that they have been feeding and encouraging for the last five or six years. Those same people who are absolutely obsessed with symbols of nationhood and, and nationality. And that seems to, you know, everything's just slogan, symbol, slogan, symbol. Don't worry about detail. Don't worry about nuance. Don't worry about sort of intelligence conversation. There's a symbol. There's a flag. There's a statue. Get angry about that. Get angry about that. Ignore everything else. Ignore the, you know, the, the death rate, the unfairness, all the other, the, the actual intricate detail that affects the way we live our life. And, you know, bow down to the flag. Brexit means Brexit. Get Brexit done. Blah, 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 blah. That's the kind of culture, these, these kind of, you know, quick fix, uh, slogan based uh, uh, scenarios that we seem to be dominated by now. And it's just, it's just so depressing because we talked at the beginning about Euro 96, right? Now, I'm clearly not going to sit here and say that society was perfect in 1996. In fact, probably if you took a straw poll of, um, of, of the views of the average person, you know, I'd like to think that we're probably a bit more enlightened now than we were uh, 20, you, 25 years. You'd like to if think. You look at you? our school photos. If you look, I, I sometimes quite find it quite surprising when you look at our year photo when we were at school. I was like, God, you know, that was. That was a lot of wine. <laughs> there was no, you know, whereas there's a real change now where where we were at school. No, but our school, our school was still relatively diverse for that area of London. I mean, we probably still had, I don't know, what, 10, 20 percent, maybe maybe 15 percent from uh, ethnic minority backgrounds. That was mm. way higher than you think about the London borough in which we grew If I'd have gone to secondary school in the area where I actually grew up and went to primary school, there would have been, it would have just been a, a complete whitewash. Everybody there. Would yeah, be yeah. But I don't think it's necessarily about, I just don't. I just wonder, I just wonder whether in 96, I just didn't know as much. And so things seem, things seemed easier and, and better. Uh, do you know what I think it is? I think it's a time. I, it, there was a time you know, sort of historians will talk about this, this kind of benign period when at the end of the Cold War after the fall of the Berlin Wall and pre-World uh, uh, Trade Center attacks, where they, where it was kind of, I think there's a there's a guy called Francis Fukuyama who called it the end of history, didn't he? And said that that's essentially it. The battles have been won and lost and that's it. And we're now into this period of sort of tranquility. And how wrong was that? Because it felt like in 1996 when we were, you know, Clearly, there would have been problems in society, but it didn't felt that we were a nation so obsessed with kind of national identity, nationalism. Um, whereas, and, and it didn't feel like the, it was actually quite a nice time because when you combine that with Britpop that was going on at the same time, there was, a, there was an attempt to kind of reclaim the identity around the flag. And it was as if to say, no, the flag is no longer associated with like the national front and the far right and the kind of aggression and the uh, the the um, lack of inclusiveness that comes with that it's now about sort of creativity and music and we're going to put the, we're going to and we're going to kind of try and make it more cool and so 1996 mm. felt like kind of you know part of that the St George's flag being everywhere felt it wasn't there was it wasn't being done in a in a kind of nasty nasty ritualistic aggressive way and it just feels we've gone back to that we've gone you know we're going backwards in so many respects. And it's really grim, grim to see. 
And I guess once once we go back to the domestic season, um, it's going to be interesting if the clubs continue to take the knee before the... We saw little examples of it when they opened up the stadium around the country, particularly around Christmas time. And uh, certain clubs um, shamefully booed uh, players taking the knee. We all know who those clubs uh, were. I don't know, in a way, in a way, it's good. Actually, in a way, it's good because it it draws it out, and it means there's there's no you know shying away from that. There's no walking around pretending that everything's okay and that we're this amazing society. You can't deny when you hear and see a stadium full of people booing a, a, a an act of. Um, uh, support for uh, uh, sort of human rights and uh, and fairness. Um, so in some respects, that's good because you know the, the sort of benign sleeping resentment and hatred that sits within uh, these supposedly civilized societies is probably more dangerous and insidious than than anything else. Uh, so I guess you could say, if you're looking for positives, at least it's being drawn out and addressed. But is it being addressed? Have, is there any hope with the di- you know the direction we're going in? overall but yeah no i i, I mean we've, we've sort of spoken about it not not on the podcast but just about it would be it would it would be a sad state where um the players feel like they've been bullied into not taking the knee you know once the domestic season starts off again and uh they feel they have to stop taking it even though they they would want to because mm of the intimidation but i guess i was i was hoping to ask what's your take on um whether it is just coincidence when the fans came back into the football stadium it was it was sort of a you know the goodwill that you talked about when uh when they first took the knee it felt like people were more comfortable with that when the fans came back the the goodwill had had was lost and um and and as a result, when they were still taking the knee, they got booed. And then to contrast that with the cricket team who took the knee initially, but stopped doing that quite early. And so yep. didn't have to necessarily have that reckoning with their fans. That's a great point because um, uh, I've had the cricket on um, today and at lunchtime, the great um, West Indies bowler, Michael Holding was talking, he made a really incredibly emotional and personal, um, not so much a plea, but a, a kind of broadcast a year ago that coincided with the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. And he has been a very, very outspoken advocate of the movement. And he has uh, now written a book in which he's had contributors from other high black high-profile sporting figures over the years, people like uh, Thierry Henry, Usain Bolt, Michael Johnson, have all contributed to this book. I think it's called Why We Kneel and How We Rise. It's coming out. Um, later this month or in July. And he's, he's just like an amazing, an amazing human being. And he, he actually called out uh, the England cricketers literally at lunchtime today, saying it was cowardly of them to have all taken the knee when, uh, for want of a better phrase, at a kind of eye of the storm, when this was all very, all going on last summer. And now to have kind of, shied away behind a a more watered down version of it that just generally speaks out against all forms of discrimination. And I think where I totally agree with him is that I think that this shying away shows how effective the Black Lives, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement has been undermined. So that now it goes back to what I said before, how it's now legitimate to criticise it 
and to suggest that it is not a force for good, which is absolutely crazy. When you look at just the facts and the details, it is, this, this isn't a thing about opinion. This is about facts. The subjugation of black people over hundreds and hundreds of years is a fact. It's not an opinion. It isn't an opinion. And it's interesting because even even actually the uh, the England football team, when they take the knee now, they do so to oppose discrimination. It's not specifically like the original um, uh, uh, motive was of just supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it just goes to show you that they're – that these these organisations are actually fearful of being seen to be supporting specifically Black Lives Matter because they know that there are um, significant numbers in their kind of fan base and people who engage with those those sports and those organisations who would oppose it and they've been given legitimacy to oppose it because of a a kind of you know a, a targeted chipping away by people, like I said before, who have a vested interest in undermining it. And, and unfortunately and shamefully, our own government are at the top of that list. They are all individuals who have, you know, they'll speak out if someone dares go near a statue, a piece of metal uh, uh, of, of uh, a former leader, or dares even question the history uh, in terms of this quite shady um, history of uh, said historical figure rather than focusing on the inequality and the outrageous injustices that still goes on to this day. And they'll fixate people using all the buttons, the dog whistle uh, tactics that they, that, they, that they employ to whip people up into a frenzy and say, focus, keep focusing on the statues and the flags and make, make them think that, that, that that's all being threatened. And that's, that's what our identity, our identity is defined by statues and flags, statues and flags. And if we, if we, um, if we keep people angry about that, then that allows us to distract people to such an extent that the movement that sparked all of this conversation off is now so terribly undermined that no sporting team, no matter how well-intentioned, can actually take the knee purely on the basis of supporting that. They have to kind of water it down by, you know, ex and it's, it's exactly the same bullshit as like, you know, anyone who says terms like uh, all lives matter. Those people really should just be stuck on a bonfire because it. But it, again, it. But it. But it. But, but it. But it goes back to my, my point before about people who will deliberately miss. They. Deli it's not an accident. They're not thick people. They are deliberately subverting and misunderstanding the argument and the agenda in order to undermine it. They know damn well that Black Lives Matter isn't saying that Black Lives Matter more than any other lives because it's clearly not saying that. What it's very clearly saying is that for generations, black lives have mattered less than pretty much any other lives, have been treated worse, have been devalued. And that if somebody is then dropped in, a, in America by a, a policeman in the street when they've done nothing wrong, that, that somehow counts for less than it would if it was somebody from a white background. So we all know what that means. But people, again, they'll say, but all lives matter, don't they? No, no, all you know, are they saying that their lives matter and all no, I can't get behind that. All lives matter. It's going too far. That's the crap they're coming out with. And it's it's willful ignorance. But willful ignorance seems to be the order of the day. Because bear in mind, we're <laughs> yeah. we're living in a world where we've had enough of experts, apparently, haven't we? And that that as a as a as a as a, as a throwaway political comment that we've all had enough of experts, I think that's a that's a really a generation defining comment. 
because that sums up, you know, details, facts don't matter anymore. Form your own opinion. Go into a social media uh, 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 wormhole, all agree with each other and just get wound up and then attack the people who we see to be opposing our, our narrow worldview. And that's the and, and, and I guess one last thing that is related to you bringing up cricket. We should just say you are you are a massive and that has been mentioned. You are also a massive cricket fan as well. I am. Um, I, I am. No, I am. you're not. Yeah, you know, you're not. You're not just wading into cricket. No, no, no. You, know, no, you but, literally but, got it. I can see it on in the background. It's on in the background. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, in my in an ideal world, really, there wouldn't be any football during the summer. I could just focus entirely on cricket because football. <laughs> Uh, mentally drains me so much that I, I love just a summer of just focusing on the cricket. And uh, much as I love an international tournament, I, I don't need it in the same way other people need it because uh, <laughs> I find it so exhausting following uh, Liverpool for nine months of the year. Um, but anyway, but anyway, uh, you may have uh, noticed that there, an England debutant from last week, Ollie Robinson, was immediately suspended for the following game because they dragged up some uh, tweets that he... Um, uh, sent out when he was 18 years old. That I mean, they ticked all the boxes of uh, offensiveness. Really, they were. I mean, they were first of all just deeply unpleasant. They sounded like just a really horrible human being. But they also managed to be uh, racist and misogynistic and sexist. And uh, you know, so it didn't paint a very nice picture of this as a this guy as a character. And I hear the defence an awful lot. That oh, but if we go down this, uh, what is this thought police? If we go down this road too much, then they can drag up stuff on anyone and punish for them for it retrospectively. Uh, can they? Because I, I'm not trying to paint myself as a perfect human being. I'm sure I've said things to people over time that have been uh, hurtful to them and uh, upsetting to them. But I know damn well you could you could record every word I've ever said. And I've not said anything even approaching what those tweets were saying. That are, I, I don't. I don't say rape. Even when I was a kid, I didn't say racist things. So if you are, are we really setting the bar so low now that until somebody's a public figure, anything they've said, they could go around professing racial hatred uh, up until the, the the point in which they become famous, and we're supposed to disregard that and say, oh, they've become a better person now. Of course, I'm not saying every single person has the right to educate themselves and improve themselves. And of course, and in fact, if more people focused on that, the world would be a much more pleasant place. So I'm not saying that people should be hung out to dry because they had uh, narrow minded and unforgivable views that that they can never move on uh, from. Because clearly we need to be better than that when everybody, I guess, deserves um, a chance. But it doesn't mean that those views shouldn't be um uh, kind of, you know, brought into the public domain and confronted, you know. So if you have said something horrific when you, even if you were technically a, a teenager, I mean, eighteen, you know what you're doing. He's eighteen, he could go to war. And- exactly. You, if you if you've done A levels, you're, you're finishing them. You're about to start university. You can you could have been you could have been working for a couple of years, haven't finished school. So you are a, an adult and a member of society. So if you're um, uh, knocking out that sort of crap on social media, then don't be uh, don't be moaning if uh, if you get a tap on the shoulder a few years later and say, well, this doesn't really represent uh, um, us our values um, in the way that we would expect. Um, and it, you know, of course, there will be people on the flip side of the coin who are saying, but where do you draw the line? This is thought police, you know, uh, uh, and. There is something to be said for that in that, like what I said, um, 
a second ago about how everybody has the right to improve themselves and, and develop as they go on. But it doesn't mean that you shy away from uh, examining the uh, the narrow mindedness in the first place and showing that there are consequences. And it isn't. This is 2021. You know, we're not talking about the 1930s here. This is 2021. Yeah. We live in an interconnected, globalized, multicultural, multi-ethnic society, and we live side by side with one another. And there's just no excuse. There's no excuse. Mm. So if you are somebody who's knocked out that sort of nonsense, then I, I struggle to sympathize um, if, you, if you get retrospectively punished. It's your own fault. Shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have thought and it. What? <laughs> yeah and what um i haven't come across this before i mean i haven't been to many england games to be fair but uh the no surrender have you have mm. you come across that oh have yeah you, have you seen that yeah, uh, yeah yeah i don't know whether they do that so much anymore i do you 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 sort of occasionally hear it um but that i i've probably been in my life uh to Maybe 10 England games, mostly in the 90s and early 2000s. I, I probably, I think the last time I saw England was at a friendly when I was at uni in Leicester and they played, uh, uh, I can't remember who they played, Macedonia or someone actually. And, um, and it was at Leicester Stadium. But in the days when I, I went to a few at Wembley back in the day, that was standard. If you're walking along Wembley Way and there's sort of, you know, the crowds are sort of building up and you're waiting to get in and out of the station, there'll be, you know, um, groups walking along yeah, that that old classic, no surrender to the IRA. That was what it. That was really what it was all about, and that's a demonstration of over that period of time what the the England national team, the supporting of the England national team. It's important to, to say that supporting of them, not the team themselves. It's not their fault. They can't control who follows them. Um, but the supporting of the national team was was kind of wound up in that that nationalism. Um, and that, that kind of, you know, far right stuff. And that, that was really a legacy of look at the behavior of the, the fans throughout the 1980s. The 1980s were the worst of times for the England national team. Every time they went anywhere, they caused, um, shame upon uh, this nation going, you know, brawling in the streets and, uh, smashing up town squares and all that sort of stuff. And that was, you know, all part of it, that kind of anger and that nationalism. So yeah, that, I don't know whether that gets sung, um, so much these days i like to think not but you'll there'll always be some people there'll always be some people but anyway rant over i just felt i don't like uh getting try, try, i try and keep this podcast as light-hearted as possible matthew as you uh as you well know but um you know i think it's difficult when 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 stuff like that happens you just think even though this is a massively unimportant um uh irrelevant uh uh, vanity project of a podcast it's still if you, if you can go, if you can if you can go through uh, a, a week like that and kind of not mention it then you've got to look, look back at yourself and go oh come on mate and I really hope that the next month we're able to just enjoy football and there isn't a negative it's going to be quite an interesting barometer of who the England fans are because tickets are clearly limited they have gone mostly to They've employed the same um, sort of principles as a, a, a sort of well-supported uh, club team would do, where they, I, I believe they're basing it on kind of loyalty and previous attendances. So the, the fans in the stadium will, on the whole, be the real hardcore England fans who've kind of been going home and away for years. So if you start getting booing for um, taking the knee, then 
you know essentially who those people are. You know, there'll be no, there's no shying away from that. It's, uh, it won't be anything to do with where the game was staged or, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of, you know, the cultural or the political leanings of a specific area. It will be a reflection of, right, this is from a wide, uh, from right across the country, these are the England fans. But let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's hope that they um, get respectful support and applause and that everyone's just focusing on the football and it's a brilliant tournament. And, um, I mean, I'm looking forward to it regardless of uh, all that. I'm, I can't wait for Italy Turkey, Matt. <laughs> Turkey. Oh, yes, that was it. That's the one. <laughs> Turkey. Yeah. We got there in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was on the tip of my tongue for that. It was on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you, what did you say? The Seychelles or something, didn't you? Idiots. Okay. Well, well, on that uh, geographically incorrect uh, bomb, bombshell, uh, it's time to say goodbye. Hope by the time anyone bothers to listen to this, they uh, either are enjoying or have enjoyed uh, the Euros. And uh, that's it. See you next time.